Good morning. My name is Bill. No, wait a minute. Maybe my name is Sam. Ugh, I can't remember. Maybe my name, is it Pete? What? Andrew? My name is Andrew? Oh yeah, now I remember. Can you imagine if you couldn't remember who you are? That was the case for a man by the name of Jeff Ingram. He was 40 years old and he was traveling into Canada um, and he lost himself, literally, like lost him. He didn't just lose his way, he lost himself. He, he was found wandering around. He had no idea who he was. He had no idea where he was. Uh, he actually went on the Today Show to try to get some help. He, he couldn't remember who he was, and he wondered if anybody would see him that knew him. And sure enough, his fiance, who was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, she saw him, came and got him. He, he couldn't really remember who she was, but he said he recognized her heart. Isn't that kind of a cool thing? But a weird thing as well. We call that sort of thing a fugue amnesia. Uh, it's brought on by a variety of factors, and it's a, it's a real thing. It happens to people. All of a sudden, they're going along, and they just lose all sense of who they are. Uh, one psychiatrist puts it this way. He said, we, we tend to experience our identity, our self of sense of knowing who we are as a thing that is constant. But he said, actually, for a number of people, it's a lot less stable and has less unity than we want to believe. So why am I talking about amnesia? Why am I talking about forgetting and remembering? Because when we come to this passage today, which I am trusting that you have read, starting in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51, and carrying on um, through 2 Kings chapter 1, the entirety of the chapter, verse 18, we are seeing, as it were, a replay of things that we have seen before. Uh, this time they are playing out in the life of Ahaziah, and he is encountering our friend Elijah, but we're seeing fire from heaven, we're seeing Baal worship, we're seeing so many things that have come before, and it's this tendency that we have as people to forget. It's this tendency that we have as people to, to lose our identity or maybe to find our identity in the wrong places and in the wrong things. Uh, the situation in Israel now is that Ahab uh, is dead. You remember last week we heard the prophecies after Ahab took Naboth's vineyard that Ahab would die, and he, indeed he did. The intervening verses in chapter 22 tell us how he died, uh, and, and now his son Ahaziah sits on the throne. And unfortunately, what we see here is Ahaziah didn't learn from the mistakes that his father and his mother made. He didn't learn from his forefathers, Jeroboam, but he was charting his course just in exactly the same way, forgetting the things that the Lord had said through Elijah, that the Lord had said through um, 
the signs of the fire on Mount Carmel and other things. And I want to walk through that with you this morning and see if we can understand it. So three ways that we're going to walk through it. The first is this. We're going to look at this, what I'm calling appalling amnesia, uh, Ahaziah's forgetfulness. Secondly, we're going to look at the emphatic reminder that God brings into his life. And then lastly, listen closely, we're going to look at an empathic Savior, uh, one who can relate, one who enters into our lives. So let's start with the amnesia. And you read these verses, right? Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, and he reigned for only two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father, the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and he worshipped him. And he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. I want to just stop and pause with those words for a minute because we really tend to read over. It's kind of formulaic in, in books like Kings and Chronicles and things like that. He walked in the ways of his fathers or he walked not in the ways of his fathers. And we oftentimes just buzz right over this. But, but there is something that is really uh, challenging for us here. As we come to these words, I think we're meant to see uh, an invitation to, uh, uh, an, inv an invitation to examine our lives. Are we simply putting up our, taking up our feet, putting them down, walking in the ways of our forefathers, our, our ancestors, our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents? Or are we carefully discerning the things that are right and wrong? And are we carefully seeing how it is that we should chart our path? particular for Ahaziah, the question is one of worship. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the Baals, the Baals that your mother brought over from Phoenicia, these Baals that your father continued to uh, allow to be worshipped in Israel, provoking the Lord to anger? Are you going to continue worshipping and consulting these Baals, or are you going to follow after Yahweh? After all, Ahaziah is a king. He is in covenant with Yahweh. Israel is their nation. And, and Ahaziah as king is supposed to be promoting the worship of Yahweh and not of Baal. Unfortunately, Ahaziah does not discern he doesn't go back and he doesn't learn his history. He doesn't recall the episode at Mount Carmel and say, here was Yahweh showing up in a very definitive way in the fire that incinerated the, the sacrifice and the altar and the water. And Baal didn't show up at all. But Ahaziah doesn't learn those lessons. He continues just to blindly walk in the ways of his fathers. And I just want to pause here a moment and ask ourselves the question, are we learning from our ancestors, from our forefathers? Um, now, I know that this makes some of you a little bit nervous because 
you you want to be defensive of our forefathers, you, both you know your immediate ones, your own parents, as well as uh, you know founders of our country and, and different things like that. But what I'm asking us to do, what I believe the Scripture is asking us to do, is not to blame our forefathers, uh, but simply to to look at it objectively and to name these are areas that went wrong, these are areas that went right, these are areas that reflected what the Lord wanted us to do, these are areas that uh, did not reflect what the Lord wanted us to do. I mean, we all make mistakes. This is one of the things that the gospel tells us, is that we are more broken and wretched than we can imagine. And this is true in my life. Uh, this is true in my dad's life. This is true in our grandparents' life. All of this. Um, I am seeking as a man to do the best that I can with what the Lord has given me. And I am going to make mistakes. And I expect that someday my kids, my sons, my daughters will sift through my own legacy and say, you know, Dad did that really well. Uh, Dad missed the boat here. Uh, and, and, and I know that's going to be the case in some of these areas. So the gospel really gives us the freedom not to look to blame, but simply to name and to say this was, these were areas that were done well. These were areas that were a little shaky. And we see that both uh, on personal levels and national levels. Let me just start with a personal level. When we look at uh, the life of even believers in the scriptures, take Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for example. They all shared a characteristic that ran in their family. Namely, they all lied. Abraham lied about being married to Sarah. Isaac did the exact same thing. He learned the lesson of his father and lied about being married to Rebekah because they were afraid, because they were seeking to protect themselves. And then Jacob, of course, is named the deceiver and uh, deceives his father to, in order to get the birthright. You, you see this thread running through this family uh, of truth-telling and deceiving. Um, take David's family, for instance. David, the, the king in Israel, incidentally, one who was called uh, a man after God's own heart, but he struggled with sexual sin. We saw that with his incident with Bathsheba, and wouldn't you know it, uh, his, his sons also struggled with incidences of sexual sin, incidences of pursuing uh, relationships with women in ways that they couldn't. Solomon had so many wives. Ammon uh, was involved in a rape of his, uh, of his uh, like stepsister, Tamar. Um, Absalom uh, slept with his father's concubines. I mean, it was all over. You see these various things running in family lines. If you're honest, you may see similar things in your line. Some of it may be uh, idols of success, uh, of achievement. Uh, some of it may be uh, idols of drink. We oftentimes see uh, alcoholism that goes down line to line to line. Uh, and, and looking back at these things and naming it may be the start of charting a new path. I think this is one of the things that we've been struggling with in America in recent days. As we think about um, our country and, and where it's gotten to, we've seen so much pain coming out 
in recent events related to the death of George Floyd, but that's the problem. It's not only the death of George Floyd. It, it traces back, and we go back into the civil rights area, and we go back into uh, slavery. We look even at the church, and we see various ways in which our theologians and forefathers have defended things like chattel slavery that have been silent during the Jim Crow area, era and all of that. And if we don't recognize the sins of our forefathers, not, not necessarily to blame them, not necessarily to excuse them, not necessarily to sort of confess their sins as our own, although we see biblical examples where Nehemiah confesses the sins of his forefathers, things that he clearly wasn't involved in himself. I, I just lay all of that aside for right now and just simply say we have to be objective or we're going to find ourselves exactly like Ahaziah is, walking in the sins of our fathers, our mothers, our forefathers, and we don't want to be there. None of us wants to be there, and the gospel invites us and empowers us to look objectively at these things, not to blame, but to name, so that we can chart a course that looks like that which the Lord has laid out. Specifically, what Ahaziah is struggling with in this amnesia is just turning to the Baals. We see that, verse 53, he served Baal, he worshipped him, provoked the Lord. More particularly in the story in 2 Kings chapter 1, we see Ahaziah is injured. He's fallen through the lattice of his upper chamber. Um, you know, houses in these days were able to walk around on roofs and uh, upper story windows. They had to have these sort of protections around. Somehow it failed and Ahaziah fell through and he was gravely injured. So what does he do in that moment? Well, he, he sends messengers uh, telling them, go inquire, this is verse 2, of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from the sickness. He says, go outside of Israel to Philistia and inquire of Baal Zebub. There's a little bit of uh, controversy over whether this was actually Zebub, which would be the master or the lord of the flies, or Zebul, who would be the, the prince master, or the, the, uh, the ruler of the masters, the ruler of the bales. Uh, I don't think it really is germane to this text, exactly where we land of. What is key here is that he provokes the Lord by not going to the king in Israel, and looking to the bales. And again, this is something that we can relate to uh, and something we need to watch out for when, when a tragedy or a need arises in our life. Where do we go? Do we turn to the gods of our fathers or are we going to look to Yahweh as the one who is king? And, and these can be very tricky. So again, I mean, if you think about America even and, and think about some of the strands of story that make up our identity as people, as Americans, uh, take just success and suffering, for instance. Uh, we have a strong narrative of success in America. 
And, and, and we can really buy into that. Like if you work hard, if you study, uh, you can be a success. You can go on Shark Tank and you can, uh, you know, present this thing and you too can be a multimillionaire and you can work hard in your sport or in your music and you can achieve. I mean, that's, that's part of the DNA of our country. Is that a bad thing? Not in and of itself. It is if it becomes an ultimate thing. And sadly, for a lot of folks, it has. We also have a narrative of suffering in our life. Uh, a narrative that says suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Suffering is to be taken care of by a pill. Suffering is to be taken care of by uh, just putting on a happy face. Uh, these are part of our cultural stories. These are strands that we pull in. So when we face a difficult time, where do we go? How do we how do we process that? Do we go to the scriptures and look at what it says about suffering? You know, count it all joy, brothers, James says, when you face trials of many kind. Uh, consider your sufferings to be in union with Christ and the opportunity that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 to share in the sufferings of Christ. Or do we pull on our cultural narratives of sufferings? Uh, there's so many things that we turn to. Uh, technology. I mean, we have a strong narrative of technology right now in our country. So when we face a problem, we, we look to science and technology to solve it. Science and technology, fine. They contribute to our lives in, in so many ways. Uh, they're, they're good servants, but they're bad masters. And, and here we see Ahaziah just with this appalling amnesia, forgetting who he is and who God has called him to be, walking in the ways of his father and his mother. Secondly, uh, we see that then the story sort of begins to play out, and God brings him an emphatic reminder. God kicks Elijah into uh, gear, and he says, go uh, and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, this is verse 3, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? And he repeats that message again in verse 6 when uh when messengers come to Elijah again, and then he repeats it uh, again in verse uh, 16. Um, and he, here's, the, here's the point that, that God is making, is that Ahaziah, you've forgotten. And he is going to remind him emphatically in the same way that he showed himself to Ahab. You remember back in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, uh, and incidentally, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, that, that is a later division between these books. This is one complete narrative. So, so we're very much moving seamlessly from 1 Kings to 2 Kings. But in 1 Kings 18, uh, God sends the fire from heaven in order to demonstrate that I am God and Baal is not. And Ahaziah has forgotten that. So how is God going to remind him? By bringing the fire from heaven. You see that uh, Ahaziah sends these troops to Elijah, uh, verse 5, and then later on, um, 
uh, in verse 11, or I'm sorry, in verse 9 and then in verse 11. Now, it's more than likely that he has sent these uh, troops, 51 people in each company, in order to, to get rid of the problem of Elijah, to take him captive. Later in verse 15, God says when the third captain comes and falls at Elijah's feet, that Elijah can go with him and he need not be afraid. So he had reason to fear from these first groups. And when they come in opposition to the Lord, and this is really important, God sends a fire to say, I am the king. Uh, we struggle with this a little bit because uh, we see that these 51 people on two different occasions, so 102 people, are, are incinerated by fire. And we say, is this, is this really the kind of God that we want to serve, somebody who just consumes innocent people? But we have to consider what is innocent and not. Again, as I've said, it's more than likely that these people came to do harm to Elijah. Uh, but what we can clearly see is that they are willing to go along with a false worldview. And one of the things that we see when we meet Yahweh in the scriptures is that we are reminded that these are really matters of life and death. Truth is not something to be played with. Truth is not something to be piddled around with, but rather truth, when we meet it in the person of Yahweh, is one to be worshipped. And if we are not worshipping him, then we have set ourselves against him. And what we have here is a picture uh, in the Old Testament through the workings of Israel. We have pictures of what uh, is in store in the last days for all those who will oppose Christ. And, and this is exactly what God wants us to see. And I know that these are difficult stories for us to read, but, but they are part of the bigger narrative that there is one God, there is one way, uh, and, and this is a matter of life and death, and God invites us to see it. And indeed, the, the third captain that the king sent, Ahaziah sent, he, he sees it. And he says, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. He, he comes and he recognizes that this is a God who is a God of justice, but he also recognizes that this is a God of mercy. And again, you see that Elijah then comes down and says, indeed, your life is to be spared. And he allows him to take him to the king, uh, where Elijah pronounces the judgment upon the king um, that, uh, that he indeed will not recover from his fall, but that he will die. Uh, as he has not sought the Lord. So sobering truths, to be true, uh, or to be sure. I, I know that these things are, are, are tough for us to deal with and to think about. But just remember that ideas matter. Your worldview makes a difference. And, and there is coming for all of us a day of reckoning. Uh, we, we want to think in this day of mercy that we live in, 
that these things will not come to fruition, but this passage reminds us that they will. Uh, but it also reminds us of the mercy of God, and this is where I want to go lastly. So if God brought in an emphatic reminder, he meets us with an empathic Savior. Just move the H around. I love the wordplay there. Uh, thank you for indulging me on that. Uh, an empathic Savior. What do you mean, Savior? Well, look at Elijah here, and remember, one of the things that we've said about the prophets is the prophets point us to Jesus. Uh, the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, they point us to Christ. They, they are um, uh, uh, figures of, of Christ in that way. And we've already mentioned how in 1 Kings chapter 18, the fire falling in Mount Carmel, how we are meant to see the fire falling from heaven, not consuming uh, the guilty, but Jesus himself uh, taking the fire. Jesus himself going in the place of the sacrifice and being consumed. And just as we were meant to see that in chapter 18, so we're reminded of that here. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 that he he came to bring the fire on this earth and that he had a baptism, a baptism of fire to undergo. Jesus is the one who ultimately takes this. And if we recognize his willing sacrifice on us, we realize that we have the kind of mediator that we need. And, and this is really pictured for us as Elijah comes down from the mountain. I love that imagery of the man on the mountain coming down to, to meet this captain and to minister mercy to him. Your life shall be spared. You've not come to a mountain that is going to consume you. This is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us. Uh, you have not come to a mountain that is blazing with fire and darkness, gloom and tempest, the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You've not come to that mountain, he says in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, uh, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Elijah here is the picture of Jesus as the mediator who comes down and, and meets those who beg for mercy. And he indeed gives it to him because he has taken the fire. He has taken the punishment for the sin that we deserved. Uh, he has taken it and he has satisfied that. Uh, the last thing that I'll just mention, there is a real, uh, I believe Jesus references uh, Baal-zebub. 
uh, as we see him here in 2 Kings chapter 1, this prince of the Baals or this, this king uh, master who sets himself up against God. And we see in, in places like Luke chapter 11 as well as the other synoptics where, where Jesus says about Beelzebub as he is uh, noted to or Beelzebul as he is noted in the passage. Um, Jesus says about him, hold on, let me find it here. Uh, Every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I'm casting out demons by Beelzebul or Beelzebub. Uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And, and then he goes this. But if it is the finger of God that is uh, by which I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away all his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. What Jesus is saying here is there is a strong man. There is a Beelzebub or Beelzebul, uh, but I am stronger than he. And though he may guard the house of this world right now, I am coming in to plunder him. I am coming in to defeat him. Uh, if he is the roaring lion, Satan, seeking to whom he may devour, devour, I am going to defang him. I am going to declaw him. He is going to lay in ruins. He cannot stand against me. And, and this is the promise here as well is that Jesus has not only become the sacrifice, that Jesus is not only the man on the mountain who comes down to offer us mercy, but we see him as the one who is the more powerful than all of our Beelzebubs in our life. And his, his, uh, his ministry is one of defeat, def def uh, defang, and declaw in order that we can live safety. What a comfort this is. We live in, in very trying times, and I know many of you are, are facing anxiety. Some of it has to do with identity, remembering who we are. Imagine being Jeff Ingram and forgetting who you are, having that kind of amnesia. Uh, you would be so filled with anxiety, so filled with worry in your particular moment. But the word of the Lord comes to us and says, God is God. And that if we bow like this third captain before him and beg for mercy, he comes in order to reclothe us with an identity that says, you are mine. I am your king. I am your God. And, and I will continue to watch over you as my deeply loved child. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Our identity is in Christ. He is the king over all false gods. And it's this that gives us the firm confidence to examine the ways of our fathers so that we would only walk in those ways that bring honor and glory to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would help us uh, in our own cultural moment uh, to, to walk in 
in the ways that you have ordained uh, and not blindly walk in the way of our mothers or our fathers or our grandparents, uh, but to only walk in those ways which bring honor and glory to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, that you have uh, encountered the fire and become the sacrifice in order that we might receive mercy and that we might know that we live in your kingdom, a kingdom that has triumphed over Satan, Beelzebub, and all his hosts. We pray now that you would uh, encourage us as we go on our way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been good to be with you. Uh, grace and peace go knowing that your Lord and your King goes before you.